Well, at the end of Matthew's gospel, uh, we know that the risen Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the mission at the end of Matthew's gospel. That's the mission that we inherit. Uh, As we go along in this new year, it's good to be reminded, isn't it, at the beginning of this year about what this mission is. Because that is what should primarily shape our hopes, our dreams, our plans for the year. The risen Jesus is the rightful ruler, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. All authority in heaven and earth is given to him. And he commanded his disciples to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the triune name, bringing them into the kingdom, teaching them to observe all that Jesus had commanded, including the command to make disciples of all nations. And these disciples made more disciples, who in turn made more disciples, who in turn made more disciples, and finally come down to us. We were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are being taught to be obedient to the Lord's commands, including the command to make disciples of all nations. And so we in turn, together as God's people, reach out to those who don't yet know him, baptizing them in the triune name, teaching them to obey all the Lord has commanded, including the command to go and make disciples of all nations. And so it goes on. And Jesus has promised to be with us as we obey this great commission. And together, we grow in obedience to him. Now that, my friends, is our mission. And because it's the mission that Jesus has given us, that's, that's our mission together at St. Mary's, isn't it? We glorify God together in response to his grace by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Our passage today, though, in Matthew 10, is set a few years before Jesus gave this great commission. And in it, Jesus commissions his disciples and sends them out on a mission, but it's a different mission from the mission that we are on now. So we need to be careful not to simply take everything that he says here as if he said it to us. As we look at our passage, we need to look at the similarities and the differences between our mission and theirs, and together think about what we can learn from our mission as we go, uh, from their mission as we, as we go about ours. Before we do that though, let me just remind you of where we're up to in the big picture of Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel started with the genealogy and birth of Jesus. Right? It will end with the death and resurrection of Jesus and that great commission that we talked about. In between, in Matthew's gospel, there are five big teaching blocks. Just like there are five books of the Old Testament. Ah, five books in the Torah of the Old Testament, right? Five books of Moses, because Jesus is the new and better Moses. Lah. And interspersed between these teaching blocks are sections with action and conflict. The first teaching block was the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 to 7. And then there was the action block in chapter 8 and 9, which we looked at last year. And the last part, uh, this year we're going to be looking at this teaching block and the next action block. Right? Now the last part of the last action block, the last thing we saw 
in Matthew series last year actually sets up the background for the section we're about to look at, which is why we're starting in chapter 9. Chapter, 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 verse 35 of chapter 9, where Jesus has been going through all the villages and cities, teaching the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction. And then it says in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Remember back in our Old Testament reading, that really long one, Exodus 34? God was angry with the shepherds of Israel. Why? Because they had not cared for the sheep. God said in verse 5 of, Exodus, uh, of Ezekiel 34, that the sheep were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. But God promised today in verse 11, when he himself would search out for the sheep, seek them out, he would rescue them and feed them, he would bind up the injured, bring them to justice, and in the end he said in verse 23 and 24 that he would give them his servant David as their shepherd, who would be prince among them. Remember that? And now Jesus looks on these people with his father's eyes. He has compassion on the people in those towns and villages. He sees their spiritual reality. They are like sheep without a shepherd. They are lost and they need him, the true God and the true David, to be their shepherd. Now, we are not in the same position as Jesus and his disciples were back then, isn't it? We don't look at the towns and villages of first century Israel, but we still need spiritual eyes as we look at our world to which we have been sent. What do you see when you, when you look at the people in our world? Do you see successful career people climbing up the corporate ladder and wish, oh yeah, I wish I could be like one of them? Do you see people struggling to make ends meet with the rising cost of living? Do you see a potential market for your products? Potential voters for your party? Potential clients for your business? Potential life partners, if only you could connect? Or do you see a mass of people out there that you don't really care about or even think about? Or do you see people loved by God but are spiritually lost? People like sheep who need a shepherd but have no shepherd. Or worse, have some kind of pseudo-shepherd who is leading them astray. People need Jesus, the good shepherd. If only we have eyes to see it. Jesus sees it back in first century Israel. And so what does Jesus do about it? Well, changing the metaphor, he says to his disciples in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Even back in those days, the need was enormous. All these towns and villages, all these crowds, and there's Jesus ministering to them all. Big needs. What's your response when you see the needs of our world? What do you do when you realize that people are lost without Jesus, the good shepherd? What do you do when you know that he's the only one who died for their sins? He's the only one who can save them. He's the only one who can bring them to his heavenly kingdom. 
What do you do when you come to see we need to bring so many, many more people need to be taking that message of Jesus to those who are lost. The, uh, the need is, is, is not only urgent, it is so urgent, but it's also so vitally important. Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Even here in Malaysia, even here in St. Mary's, even here in KL, so much to be done, so few to do it. So what's the answer? Well, Jesus sets the example. He first and foremost calls his disciples to pray. Pray earnestly, therefore, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Friends, that is where mission starts, isn't it? Mission starts in prayer. Nothing of spiritual significance happens unless God is the one at work. We need to pray. God chooses to act in answer to his people's prayers. So if you see the needs, if you have compassion on people, if you know the gospel needs to go out, then pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more laborers. Pray for more laborers for this cathedral. Pray for more laborers for our diocese. Pray for laborers for our country. Pray for laborers for our world. Harvest is plentiful. Workers are few. Pray. Now the Lord of the harvest hears our prayers. And when we pray, he will answer. He does. And that's what's about to happen in Matthew 10. Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, is going to send out his laborers. And you know what? He's actually going to choose for among those he asked to pray. They would be sent in answer to their own prayer. So careful what you pray for, huh? We are told about this commission from the beginning of Matthew 10. Chapter 10, verse 1, he calls his 12 disciples to him. And in the second half of verse 1, he gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, until now, in Matthew's Gospel, we've seen Jesus cast out evil spirits with just a word, heal everyone who came to him from the man who was paralyzed to the woman with heavy bleeding, out of the two blind men, even to the dead girl. We've seen Jesus' authority over evil spirits, authority over diseases, because, because he is God come in the flesh. But now Jesus gives his authority to these, these 12 disciples, now called apostles, which means sent out ones. Right? In those days, an apostle carried the authority of the person who sent him. He gets signed for him. These 12 apostles of Jesus were sent with his authority to do the things he was doing. Now, he didn't give this authority to everyone who followed him but he gives it to these twelve. And we have their names. Verse 2. Simon, called Peter, Andrew his brother. James, son of Zebedee, John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So this mission to Israel was done by these twelve apostles. 
this particular mission to Israel. There's another mission to Israel later, but this is a mission to Israel done by these 12 apostles. And in fact, it would be completed by them. Now, that's a little bit different from our mission, isn't it? The apostles started our mission, but they have long gone to glory, and our mission continues. And we still get the benefit of the apostles because we have the apostolic teaching in the New Testament, but we don't have the apostles themselves. And we don't have the same kind of apostolic authority to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, don't get me wrong. Doesn't mean we don't pray and ask God for healing. Of course we do. Doesn't mean God can't or won't respond to our prayers. Of course he can and of course he does. That's up to him. But we don't have the authority to say, oh, sickness be gone. I know it's going to happen just like that. You and I can't walk through the ICU of the hospital and clear it out. Jesus could. You and I can't go to the morgue and start raising people. Jesus could. Right? He could do things like that. Of course, not in the hospital, huh? because they didn't have those. Uh... But these guys would minister like Jesus because Jesus gave them the authority to do that. And as Jesus sends out these 12 disciples on their mission, Jesus gives them very strict instructions about who they should reach. He says in verse 5, Go nowhere among the Gentiles. Don't go to the Gentiles. Gentiles are the people who are non-Jews. Don't go to them. And he says, Enter no town of the Samaritans. So Samaritans are people from the northern tribes, kind of got mixed blood with them and the, and the people who come to live in the land and religious practices got mixed. He said, Don't go to them. Go rather, verse 6, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember how Jesus saw the people of Israel like sheep without a shepherd? Now he's sending his disciples out to bring them in. And that has got to happen first before the gospel is going to go out later to the Samaritans and the Gentiles. Now, that is very different, isn't it, for our mission? We saw at the start of the sermon that our mission is to make disciples of all nations. We are not restricted. We must reach everyone. But this mission in Matthew 10 is a short-term mission to the Jews, sometimes called the mission to Israel. That's always part of God's plan. Israel must first be introduced to her Messiah, and only then his light will shine from there to the nations. So what does Jesus tell his disciples to do as he sends them out on this mission to Israel? Well, the first thing they're to do, in verse 7, is to proclaim. And what are they proclaiming? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the Old Testament, the kingdom would come when God came to save and rule his people. And the good news that these apostles were about to go and tell everyone is, the kingdom of God was about to come. God was coming to save and rule his people. It was at hand, it's about to happen. Now, of course, in our mission, we proclaim the same gospel. A bit more detail and updated in time. But now it's abundantly clear. We know the God who came to save and rule his people is none other than the person of Jesus Christ. And he saved his people by dying on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins in our place and rising from the dead. And he rules his people as our risen king. Jesus is that good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. And he ever lives to lead and guide and protect us. And so... Now we don't just say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We say the kingdom of heaven has come because the king died and rose again to bring it in. 
and those who believe now live as citizens of the heavenly kingdom. And we also say the kingdom of heaven will come because one day the king will come back, bring the kingdom in, in all its fullness. Like the disciples, we proclaim the kingdom. And even more clearly now, we proclaim the king. And when Jesus sent his disciples out on this mission to Israel, he didn't just tell them to proclaim the kingdom. They were to do all the same kind of miracles that he did to show the coming of the kingdom. So he tells them in verse 8, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. These are things the Old Testament anticipated would happen at the coming of the kingdom. I will look at that later, uh, a little bit uh, in, uh, in chapter 11. Right. Those things happen in the ministry of Jesus, authenticating him that he really is God come to save his people. And since he delegated this authority to his disciples, that would happen in their ministry as well. They would do these miracles, these signs, wonders, and mighty works that Paul would later describe in, in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 12 as signs of an apostle. They'll go and do that. Now, let me tell you. If someone were able to, with just a word, empty ICU, that would be pretty lucrative, wouldn't it? I just imagine what the private hospitals charge for treatment. Huh? You go those days, and there are no guarantee cure. Treatment only. Right? You go those days, and you can imagine in their society, they've got no health care. I can, I can heal you. You can charge a lot, you know. But that's not the point. So Jesus warns them not to do that. He says in verse 8, You receive without paying, give without pay. Right? Even though the apostles had authority to do these amazing miracles, they mustn't charge for it. On the other hand, the Lord of the harvest would provide for the needs of his laborers through the community to which they were sent. Uh, and so Jesus didn't want them to bring money and supplies and spare clothes and sandals with them from home. He says in verse 9, Acquire no gold or silver nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff. For, why? For the laborer deserves his food. Right? In other words, those who are sent to proclaim the gospel should be supported by those to whom they are sent. Now, of course, our context is different. But the principle that those who receive ministry support those who minister still applies, isn't it? Right? Even in our mission, that's expressed differently in different contexts. Right? The Apostle Paul, for example, taught churches to support those who minister God's word among them. Uh, he writes in uh, 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 to 18, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Same principle. Uh, there were times when Paul himself was paid by one church to serve a different community rather than the community that, they, that, that he was serving, paying the, the, the same community pay. That's okay. He's paid to go and do that. Sometimes he gave up his right for support and he worked with his own hands to support himself. Uh, he had the right to be supported in ministry, but what he actually did actually just depends on what's best for the ministry. That was his attitude. Lah. As we go out with the gospel, 
Some of us are supported financially by others in the church so that we can serve full-time doing that. Right? Some of you work by day so that you can support us as well as your own families, and then you engage in ministry yourself at night or on the weekends. None of our full-time workers will get rich from gospel service. But they must be looked after properly. It's not charity, for the laborer deserves his wages. And it's not just food, it's also shelter. All right, when Jesus sent the apostles out in this ministry to Israel, remember, it's a short-term itinerant mission. Right? They might have had their own home somewhere in Galilee, but they won't be staying there. They're going around from town to town. So what are they going to do? Well, in the next section, Jesus is going to give them instructions about who they should stay with. Uh, of course, it's different now in our situation. We are sent to all the nations. We're not given detailed instructions about how far to go, where to stay, what to bring. Some of us will leave home to take the gospel to other places. Some of us will stay home, and some of us will come home to bring the gospel to our own city. Most of us are not doing itinerant ministry, at least most of the time. Right? We live in the Klang Valley, we work in the Klang Valley, we minister to the people around us in the Klang Valley. Some of us do, do make short-term mission trips, a bit more like this mission to Israel. Uh, but let me just say, incidentally, la, sometimes it's easier when you go to somewhere else because you know the only reason you're there is for the mission. right? So you go and do it. But just remember, the reason you're here is for the mission as well. Everything else you do is the infrastructure that's needed so you can play your part in the mission. And that is true whatever your role in the mission might be. Right? Even if it's making disciples of little children or elderly relatives. Don't get so caught up in optimizing the infrastructure that you actually forget the mission. Now, with this mission to Israel, when they came to a town or village, verse 11, the disciples were to find out who is worthy in it and stay there. In other words, find someone who is responsive to the message of the kingdom, lodge with them. In our mission, there are a variety of ways that gospel workers are looked after. Right? Again, depends on the circumstances. Missionaries stay for a time in people's homes in the book of Acts. Even today, we open our homes to gospel workers who are passing through in the short term. Uh, but as a church, we financially support the housing and other expenses of those who are work, whose work is to labor among us full-time by paying them a decent salary each month. Just like the disciples who are meant to look for a worthy person to stay with, as a church, we look for gospel partners to support the ministry. Because right? ministry support is ministry partnership. It's a matter of sharing in the ministry of the other person. And when Paul received money from the Philippian church, he called it a partnership in giving and receiving. Their gift was in fact in Philippians 4 verse 18, an offering to God. Now, we can only have gospel partnership with those who believe the gospel, isn't it? Right? Uh, so as a matter of principle, we don't ask unbelievers to fund gospel workers. They want to give money to maintain a heritage building, okay lah. Uh, you want to give money to feed the poor? Okay, we keep it separate. But we don't use their money 
for direct gospel work, we don't use their money to provide for gospel workers. We, as gospel people, take responsibility for that. Uh, many, of our, many of us partner our full-time workers by giving to the Ministry Workers Fund or to the Ministry Training Scheme Fund, MTS. Right? The Ministry Workers Fund pays the salaries of most of the gospel workers of our cathedral and supports our missionary. Uh, the Ministry Training Scheme Fund uh, pays the salaries of the apprentices and the scholarships of our theological students so we can train the next generation of laborers for the harvest. Right? These are forms of gospel partnership. Right? These particular funds don't fund my salary because that comes from the diocese. We have another form of gospel partnership. Uh, but most of the laborers uh, who work full-time here are engaged in ministry here are paid from these two funds. So if you're a believer, you want to partner them in ministry by supporting their ministry, suggest that like, you allocate some money from your pledge to those funds. Gospel partnership is a privilege for both givers and receivers. We're thankful to God that we can be partners together. When Jesus' disciples found a worthy person to stay with, they were, in verse 11, to stay there until they departed. Right? The Lord of the harvest will provide a place for his laborers, and they should be content with the home provided for them, rather than looking for a better offer. So stay there. In our mission, those who are in paid ministry should be supported by the church with generosity. And I'm grateful to our church for, for your willingness to do that. At the same time, like the disciples, our priority should be the mission, not shopping around to secure the best financial deal. Again, I'm very grateful for our team at St. Mary's because I know they've got a mission heart. They're not looking for financial gain. In Philippians 4 again, the Apostle Paul was really grateful for the Philippians gift and the gospel partnership it represented. But he hadn't pushed them for it. Because he said in verse 11, I have learned in every situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Learning contentment is an important part of the sanctification process for all of us as we serve Christ on his mission. When the apostles entered a home, now the home of the person they think is worthy, they were to operate on that assumption. As you enter the house, Jesus says in verse 12, greet it. Uh, we know from elsewhere, the greeting is not saying, hey, hi, right? Uh, greeting is something like, peace be to this house. Uh, meaning, the household, uh, not the building. Um, in Isaiah 52.7, God spoke about the messengers of his kingdom. How beautiful on the mountains are those who bring good news, who publish peace, who bring good news of happiness, who publish salvation, who say to Zion, our God reigns. You see, this gospel message that the disciples are bringing as one of these heralds, the message that God reigns, that God has come to save and rule his people, the message of salvation, it's a message of peace. It's about the end of hostility between man and God. It's about the end of judgment for Israel. It's about the end of the exile spiritually for them. It's, it's about peace with God. And so the greeting of peace, peace be to this house, 
by the people who are bringing this good news is actually a significant declaration. But it is not magical. Its efficacy depends on the receiver. Jesus continues, verse 13, If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. In our mission, there will be times where we bring the gospel to people and we think they've received it, but actually in their hearts they haven't. We can't see people's hearts. We don't have windows into their soul. If they say they believe, we have to accept that. We accept them as gospel partners. We baptize them and their children. We share Holy Communion with them. We treat them as fellow believers in life and in death. We assume and declare that God's peace is with them. But if it turns out in the end that they're not believers, then those things actually would have done them no good. If you are baptized, but you don't trust in Christ, that baptism is not going to save you. If you share the Lord's Supper, but you don't trust in Christ, then you haven't really fed on Christ in your heart. If you hear the words of assurance after the confession, but you didn't really repent, then those words don't really apply to you. In our mission, just like on that mission to Israel, there is such a thing as charitable assumption. And we must give it to each other. We must. But what's really important for each person is their heart. Finally, in this mission to Israel, there were going to be some towns that reject the apostles and their message. Jesus says to his disciples in verse 14, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Right, in those days when, when Jews entered into Gentile areas, right, uh, then when they come back to the Jewish area, they will shake off the dust from their feet to get rid of the unclean dirt. Right? When they come back, they want to bring the Gentile dirt back to the Jewish site. Right? And Jesus saying, if a town rejects the Messiah and his kingdom, that actually they are not part of Israel. They are actually no better than a Gentile city. In fact, worse. Verse 15, Jesus says, I tell you, it would be more merable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Sodom and Gomorrah were cities in the Old Testament that God destroyed with fire and sulfur from heaven because of their terrible wickedness. But you know what? They didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have the Messiah or his representatives actually coming to them and telling them about the kingdom. Immoral as they were, and deserving of judgment as they were, they were not as culpable as these conservative religious towns who rejected Jesus and his gospel. And friends, that's a warning for us today, isn't it? Those who hear the gospel and reject it, will face God's terrible judgment. That's so culpable. For us, we've got, we've got the full revelation of God in Christ Jesus. Even more, actually better than those times, we have the whole story of Christ. We know the rest of the story. We know about His death and His resurrection. We know what it means. We don't just have the Old Testament, we've got the New Testament as well. If, reject, 
If those towns that rejected had more than Solomon and Gomorrah, we got even more than them. Those who have that and rejected are more culpable than even those towns. Their judgment will be even less bearable on that last day. So brothers and sisters, we've looked this morning at just the first part of Jesus' instructions as he sends his disciples out on that mission to Israel. As we go forward the year, let's do so cognizant of our mission. Let's see and love people the way Jesus did. Let's pray for more laborers. And as gospel partners, let's work together to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for giving us a mission to make disciples of your Son. As we tell people about him, as we help each other grow in obedience to him. So please help us to take this mission seriously. Lord, we know that the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. Please, Father, would you be sending more workers for this harvest field? Father, thank you for giving us a part in this mission. May we each play our part, whatever that may be. Help us to keep trusting you, to keep supporting each other in the mission, to keep faithfully speaking your word, to be prepared for rejection. May we be your faithful servants this year and in the years to come. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.